0: Please be seated. <clears throat> this is still the season of epiphany, the season of discovery, the season of things being revealed, being seen. And we also are in the beginning of Black History Month. And there was a remarkable story on NPR a few days ago by the reporter Sandia, uh, Sandia Dirks about the family of Carter G. Woodson. So I've spoken about Carter G. Woodson before. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, know who he is. He is known as the father of black history. He was an African-American historian, lived in Washington, D.C. for most of his life. And in fact, his home and his office had become a museum in the Shaw neighborhood on Ninth Street, you can see it. Just north of there is a park with, that has his name on it and a, a beautiful statue of him that is there. He started Black History Week which became Black History Month. But the story on NPR was not actually about him. Oh, this is on. <laughs> it was not actually about him, but about his relatives, people related to him. First, we are introduced to a young man, a student at UC Santa Cruz named Brett Woodson Bailey. Brett, who grew up knowing that his great 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 uncle was a great man, Carter G. Woodson. Um, And Brett also describes what it's like being a student at UC Santa Cruz, um, being a black student on campus that is mostly white and how that feels. We're also introduced to one of his cousins, a distant cousin of his, who's actually nearly six decades older than Brett, who has known him since an early age and really been part of his life, sort of a father figure, helping as, as he grew up. And they're very close. But the surprising thing is this cousin, whose name is Craig Woodson, is white. Brett talks about how when he discovered that he had a white cousin, he was very surprised. He said, none of my other cousins are white. Um, He hadn't thought about how that might be. And so Craig, who is interviewed in the same story, um, shares about how growing up, he knew that his family could date themselves all the way back to the early days of colonial America back to Jamestown. And this was always a point of pride that they knew their heritage. But as he learned a little bit more, um, started to do his own research, he was appalled when he found out that his family in 1619 purchased six of the first 20 Africans brought on the ship the White Lion to the shore of America. He was ashamed to admit his real family history to anyone. What Craig Woodson does is he is an ethnomusicologist. His specialty is African drumming and rhythm. And um, many of the people that he's closest to are black and he did not want to tell anybody about his family history. But he did share with one of his closest friends, a woman named Betty Cox. And he describes it, you, you hear it um, on the NPR program uh, they actually record the way he tells this story, and he's crying. He says, without ba- batting an eyelash, his friend Betty said, I know some Woodson's. I'll introduce you to them. <laughs> people related to Carter G. And so of course, he took her up on that, and he got to know people who were distant relatives of his, and they all did DNA work, and they found out that indeed, they are related. So the interviewer asked Brett, the young man, how do you heal the past? A big question, hard to answer. It turns out that Craig, also not knowing how to do it, has been trying to learn how do you heal the past. He took initiative and invited the Black Woodson cousins to join with the White Woodson's at a meeting together in a church where he offered a formal apology of what had been done in the past. They play audio of it, and as I feared it might be, it sounded incredibly awkward and incredibly vulnerable. And he shared, reflecting afterwards, that as important as it was to do that, really, it probably was more of a gift to the white Woodson's than it was to their black relatives. But they did it. The more important thing, I think, is the way that real family relationships did get formed and the way that Craig and Brett have a a real kinship, more than just nominal, showing up for each other. And the takeaway, you know, after all of these things being revealed, being seen, the season of epiphany, the story is full of things being revealed, life-changing things. The takeaways was the discovery for Craig Woodson that the closest answer to this attempt to heal the past is to show up in the present. When Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world, he is telling them that they have the power to heal, to turn things around, to spread love and to make a difference to let their light shine on the darkness and the hurt and the injustice that is found in the world. Bible scholars point out that this is a really unusual thing for Jesus to say. Um, In other places where the phrase, the light of the world is used, it's only used to describe God. God is the light of the world. Or later in the gospels, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but only here does he look out at humans, at these bumbling apostles, very flawed and he looks at them and says to them you are the light of the world an incredible elevation of these people he also tells them that they are the salt of the earth which is a slightly mysterious phrase but salt at jesus's time was a precious commodity incredibly valuable and salt was used for two things primarily one to season and another to preserve. Salt has the power to preserve. So salt adds life. In fact, through science, we've come to learn that a certain amount of sodium is needed for us in our bodies in order for them to function properly. So Jesus says to these disciples and to us, you are salt. You are light. You are life. And this gives us hope, hope because we have received these gifts and they are not for us to keep to ourselves. The Lord needs us to share them, to spread them, and to bring light and life to the lives of others. Today at St. John's it's our annual meeting and we have this chance if you weren't able to attend the meeting that was at 10 o'clock and I apologize for running over. I thought I was watching my watch, but I had too much to say. Um, So we started this service a little late. But uh, if you didn't get to attend it, it was recorded. You can watch it online. It's a chance for us to reflect on where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. And in this beloved parish, there is a lot to celebrate. There's a lot of light and a lot of life. But also, it's worth reflecting on and noting that this is a very old church church seen a lot. And we have had some of the most prominent people of American history walk through these doors and worship here in this space, in these pews. Visitors often ask me about the kneelers that are here. We have these needlepoint kneelers that have a, a kneeler for every president, starting from George Washington. And, um, and I like to explain to them, every president gets a kneeler, good or bad. <laughs> They all get a kneeler the same size, same shape. We were the church of William Seward. He was a member. His pew was pew number one, which was right over in that area. Um, I recently read that he invited Emerson once as a guest to sit with him in his pew. William Seward was a sponsor of Harriet Tubman. Um, he, I was delighted to see in the movie that came out recently about Harriet Tubman that he played a role. He was one of the characters in the movie and he was played by devoted Episcopalian, um, uh, oh my gosh, Waterston, say the name. <laughs> Sam Waterston, who has worshiped at St. John's. <laughs> um, well he was a member of this church but so was John C. Calhoun. Uh, one of the most well-known proponents of slavery. Many of our early members of St. John's owned enslaved people and profited from owning enslaved people and from their toil. There are also stories of the Reverend Polly, who baptized and married both enslaved and free men and women, and of their names being recorded in our church register right next to and with dignity beside the names of the most powerful people in our country. We have a lot more to learn about our past, and some of it will be uncomfortable, especially for those of us who are white and who may not know or, or realize the invisible or even not so invisible privileges that we stand upon. It may be uncomfortable like it was uncomfortable for Craig Woodson, but as Jesus says, The truth sets us free. And from Brett and Craig Woodson, we can learn not to let the fear that dwells around shame and guilt prevent us from the sacred act of being present to one another anyway. To care for each other, to show up for each other, to be family to each other. Because we are God's family, and this is light. A little bit later in the service, we will hear the choir sing a setting of the song This Little Light of Mine. And it's a, a wonderful setting. It's actually done by former music director Bill Roberts. And many think of This Little Light of Mine as just a children's song, but it is so much more. It is deeper and richer than that. There is a power to this song. And during the civil rights movement, this song was sung by men and women who were afraid of being beaten and mistreated when they stood up for their rights. But these words, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, gave gave the people the power to face down the hate that surrounded them, to continue to be light instead of hate. No one's going to stomp it out. No one's going to snuff it out, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. The darkness is real. The forces that want to snuff out light and life and truth are real. We have to face them. But Jesus reminds us that we are salt and light. And when you trust him, and when you show up, you are the light of the world. Amen.